All right, well, good to see all of you here tonight, and um, I have some various friends here tonight that I'm glad to see as well, so good to see all of you. And our speaker, Yoram Edinger, is here, and um, I've known Yoram, I've known you about 15 years. We met over at Katie Bible Church. That was about 15 years ago. Yeah. And um, so we have developed a good friendship over the years. And when I am in Israel with a tour group, he usually comes and speaks to the tour group one night. And he'll come over and we'll have breakfast together a couple of mornings. And then when he's in Houston, we usually have breakfast together at least once or twice. And I'm glad to have him speak here at West Houston Bible Church. Yoram, for those of you who don't know, he was the consul general here in the late 80s. And he then served later in Washington, D.C., and uh, retired with the rank of ambassador, although he was never the Israeli ambassador to D.C., much to the chagrin of many people. And he has a newsletter. I don't know if we have something, Cheryl, that we can put out. So if anybody wants to sign up, do you want to do that or just give them your website and then they can go there to sign up? And he keeps he gives really excellent excellent information and he's good to uh to follow him give you good insights into what's going on in the middle east in israel in america things of that nature so with that i'm going to introduce i've introduced you to yorm and i'm going to turn it over to him you have between an hour and an hour and 15 minutes so take the three-hour lecture in your head and and abridge it yes Yes, you can have interaction, question, answer as well. Everybody's ready. They're primed and ready to go. So you are turned on. You've got your thing up. There you go. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It's my my pleasure, my honor uh, to be here again, uh, especially hosted by uh, Pastor Robbie Dean, who's... Uh, commitment to the Jewish people and the Jewish state has been second to uh, to none. And I appreciate the opportunity to share with you some of my thoughts <coughs> about uh, the current state of affairs in our part of the world with a focus on uh, the policy by the U.S. towards Iran and the question uh, is it uh, repeating or avoiding past uh, critical mistakes. And when it comes to critical uh, past mistakes, uh, we can start with the current war between Israel and uh, the Hamas Palestinian terrorists in Gaza and Hezbollah terrorists in uh, Lebanon. Uh, Hamas uh, is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood, which was established back in 1928, uh, has a vision, has a so-called constitution, which transcends the issue of Israel, which does not consider Israel to be the top uh, target or top priority, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood considers its top priority 
to establish a universal Islamic society, toppling actively every single national Islamic government and replacing it with an universal Islamic government whereby there is only one legitimate religion in the world, Islam, under God or with the grace of God. And in the process, in the process, bringing the so-called infidel West to submission, but especially, especially the great American Satan, the USA. Hezbollah in the north happens to be a proxy of Iran, which just like Hamas does not consider Israel to be its top priority for Iran, the current regime in Iran, which ascended to power in February of 1979, the vision has focused on bringing down every single what they call apostate regime, an apostate regime for Shiite Islamic Iran is any Sunni Muslim regime, namely to bring down the regimes in Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Egypt, Jordan, Oman, Qatar, Kuwait, <coughs> etc., and then turn to the next stage of the agenda, and that is global agenda, transcending the Persian Gulf, transcending the Middle East, transcending uh, Africa. The aim is to bring down the great American Satan. And I mentioned that about the Hamas, which has the Muslim Brotherhood agenda, and Hezbollah, which has basically the uh, Iranian Ayatollah's agenda, because both focus on bringing down the United States. And Israel, in fact, while fighting its own war of survival against these enemies, is also fighting the war of Western civilizations against Islamic terrorism, or to be specific, the war of the United States against arch enemies, which are intent to bring down what they call the great American uh, Satan. While those aims are in place and are translated into intensified anti-American terrorism throughout the globe, the U.S. has followed a very systematic policy, which one may define as the diplomatic option on Iran or towards Iran. The U.S. does not believe in confronting Iran militarily, does not believe in regime change in Iran, the U.S. currently firmly and steadily believes in 
conducting negotiation with Iran on limiting itself to the diplomatic option. And this is not a verbal exercise. This is not some uh, verbal uh, gimmick to uh, refer to the policy as diplomatic option. This is a policy which eliminates any military option, eliminates any option of bringing the regime down in Iran, in Tehran, and allowing only diplomatic option towards, uh, towards Iran. Uh, and that option goes back to the founding of the current Ayatollah's regime in Iran, which was February 1st, 1979, leading to the ascension of the Ayatollahs to power in Iran, were series of communications between the Ayatollahs who were at that time in exile in Paris, because the regime in Iran at that time, the pro-American Shah of Iran, who was referred to, and rightly so, as the American policeman of the Gulf, that regime fought against the Ayatollahs and forced them out of Iran into exile, among other places, in, uh, in Paris in France. The U.S. at that time with President Jimmy Carter conducted negotiation with, the Ayatollah, with Ayatollah Khomeini at that time in Paris and the administration became convinced that the Ayatollah Khomeini regime when taking over, if taking over control of Iran, would be very accommodating. And the way they were misled into that was through messages which they received from Ayatollah Khomeini, calming down any concern about the regime change in Iran from pro-U.S. Shah to Ayatollah Khomeini. And when one goes over the messages exchanged between Ayatollah Khomeini in Paris and Washington, and then assessments made by the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, and then the assessments made by the USA, what comes to mind Systematically, the message of accommodation and Washington was convinced that the so-called moderate advisors surrounding Ayatollah Khomeini are going or were going to lead Ayatollah Khomeini to be pro-American. In fact, the administration in Washington was very impressed by the fact that Ayatollah Khomeini chose to surround himself with advisors educated in Germany and in England and in France 
and in Italy, who spoke number of foreign languages, and supposedly, if you're educated in Western capitals, and you speak few foreign languages, and you are educated in the West, well, isn't it obvious that you are moderate? And that was the message penetrating Washington, very skillfully so, by Ayatollah Khomeini and his advisors, to the extent that the messages coming out of Iran, based on the meetings between the ambassador of the USA at that time, William Sullivan, and some of the close advisors of Ayatollah Khomeini, the messages came down to the assessment or conclusion that should Ayatollah Khomeini take over control of Iran, he was going to be an Iranian edition of Gandhi. I mean, they went that, uh, that far. The State Department at that time, uh, under uh, Harold Saunders, who was perceived to be the luminary of the Middle East, relaxed any concern. And it basically sent the message that Ayatollah Khomeini was to be focused only on Iran, had absolutely no intention of spreading the so-called Islamic Revolution beyond Iran. And that led President Carter, who addressed a global uh, meeting of uh, leaders in the islands of Guadeloupe, ten days before Ayatollah Khomeini returned to Tehran, after the flight departure, but actually flight of the Shah of Iran out of uh, Iran, President Carter delivered a message at that meeting in Guadeloupe that based on most authoritative CIA examination of Ayatollah Khomeini, he assured global leaders that Ayatollah Khomeini was going to be preoccupied with tractors, not with tanks. And in fact, such a diplomatic option towards the Ayatollahs was responded by the Ayatollahs as expected, as expected, in a pretty radical manner. Because the Ayatollahs, just like any other rogue element in the Middle East, and probably beyond the Middle East, bite the, bite the hand that feeds it. It happens again and again to the U.S., to Israel, and any Western party which deludes itself that gestures toward rogue regime were going to be appreciated. And we saw that uh, with the U.S. assisting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to get rid of Soviet military occupation of Afghanistan, and in return, the Mujahideen got involved in September 11.
What else do you expect from a rogue regime that perceives gestures to be not sign of compassion, but rather signs of weakness? And when you detect weakness, you take advantage of it and you push further and you hit in a more, you hit the Western naive party in a more intensified manner. And this has been the story of U.S. policy towards Iran since 1979. The Ayatollahs took over control of Iran in February of 79. By November 79, they took over the American embassy in Tehran, holding some 50 Americans hostages for 444 days. Since that time, the U.S. has been insisted, insisting on repeating rather than avoiding those past mistakes, and most notably 2015, which saw the conclusion of an accord between the U.S., and other Western elements, accord with Iran, the nuclear accord or the JCPOA, which netted the Ayatollahs of Iran some $150 billion. And when we go back asking ourselves, uh, what, have, what have the Ayatollahs done with such a bonanza, the conclusion is very obvious. Most of it was not dedicated to enhancing standard of living. Most of it was not dedicated to enhance the level of welfare, education, health, medicine, road infrastructure. Most of it has been dedicated to bolster Iran's anti-American terrorism, anti-American drug trafficking, an anti-American proliferation of military systems. And I'm not referring to the Persian Gulf area where such a proliferation has taken place, and not merely to the Middle East, but we're talking about global anti-U.S. terrorism and drug trafficking and proliferation of military systems. Iran, the Ayatollahs, have been involved in attempts to subvert and terrorize and attempts to bring down every single pro-American Arab regime. In Saudi Arabia, you have a Shiite or concentration of Shiite population, Shiites, which is the religion of the vast majority of Iranians, and those Shiites in Saudi Arabia concentrate in the leading oil region of Saudi Arabia, and the Ayatollahs of Iran are preoccupied with subversion in that area in an attempt to bring down the pro-American regime in Saudi Arabia. Iran has been involved in Yemen in an attempt to bring down the Saudi regime north of uh, Yemen 
by activating the Houthi terrorists in, uh, in Yemen. However, the U.S. policy with regard to Iranians' involvement in attempts to bring down the regime in Saudi Arabia has been to embrace Iran while pressuring Saudi Arabia. And the reason has to do, if you follow the policy of Secretary of State uh, Tony Blinken, the reason has to do with his assessment that the Saudis were, violated, were violating human rights in Yemen by attacking fiercely the Houthis of Yemen. The fact that the Houthis were proxy of Iran attempting to bring down the regime in Saudi Arabia has somehow escaped the assessment by the State Department. And in fact, the, upon assuming power uh, of the State Department, Secretary Blinken took the Houthis, who until then were part of the terrorist list, according to the U.S. government, took the Houthis out of the terrorist list. And as we found out in recent months, the Houthis have attacked American vessels, international vessels, going through the Arabian Sea into the Red Sea, venturing into Europe. And recent days, the U.S. State Department has considered reinstating the Houthis to the list of terrorist states. But this has been only small part of the Iranians taking advantage of the diplomatic option enacted by the U.S. because Iran has been involved in fomenting civil wars in Iraq, for instance. And certainly in Iraq, the attempt has been not only to expand the reach of the Ayatollahs into Iraq, but the primary aim has been to surround Saudi Arabia by controlling Iraq and transforming Iraq into an anti-Saudi platform. The Iranians have been involved in Syria as well as in Lebanon in an attempt to expand the reach towards the Mediterranean, but at the same time to engulf Israel, surround uh, Israel. And this has been the aim of the Iranians by supporting Hamas in Gaza. Iran has been the number one party responsible to Hamas' sophisticated network of underground tunnels, Hamas' sophisticated arsenal of ballistic missiles, and in fact, much more sophisticated arsenal of missiles in the hands of Hezbollah in Lebanon. Obviously, providing Hamas and providing Hezbollah with sophisticated military infrastructure requires funding. And the question is, where do they get that funding? 
And it goes back to the diplomatic option. Because part of the diplomatic option has been to suspend economic sanctions against Iran. How can you impose economic sanctions if you seek accommodation with Iran, supposedly? And indeed, economic sanctions which were imposed before were suspended at the beginning of 2021, roughly February 2021, when Secretary Blinken assumed uh, power in the State Department, and suspending economic sanctions, primarily sanctions which limited the export of uh, oil from Iran, export of natural gas, suspending it meant a surge of Iranian oil export from half a million barrel a day to two to three million barrels per day. And if you compute the dollar value of such a surge going back to February of 2021, you come up with roughly $100 billion added national income to the Ayatollahs resulting from suspension of economic sanctions, which obviously has provided the Ayatollahs with the possibility of, of uh, sending both Hamas terrorists and Hezbollah terrorists with more military hardware and providing them with most advanced technologies part of the sophisticated underground metro city, so to speak, in Gaza. When one talks about the use made by the Ayatollahs of the diplomatic option, as I mentioned before, we're talking about an area transcending the Persian Gulf, transcending the Middle East, transcending North and East, and West Africa, where the Ayatollahs are very, very deeply entrenched, once again, in an attempt to bring down pro-U.S. regimes and promote anti-U.S. regime, the reach of the Ayatollahs has extended all the way to Latin America, with increasing preoccupation in Latin America, for an obvious reason. They view Latin America as the soft underbelly of the United States. And one doesn't have to be a, strat a strategy genius to understand that indeed Latin America, mostly Central America, are constitute the soft underbelly of the United States. And when you go back to that policy by Iran's ayatollahs, you find out that as soon as they assumed power from 1980 onward until today, they started focusing upon Latin America. And the question is, what do they have to do in Latin America? This is not an, a Muslim area. This is not a Middle Eastern area. What are they doing in Latin America? And once again, 
it goes back to a major, major component of the Ayatollah's vision to bring down the great American Satan. And when one talks about Latin America, one talks about very close collaboration between the Ayatollahs of Iran and Hezbollah of Lebanon. And the reason that the Ayatollahs have leveraged the, the Hezbollah's presence in Latin America has to do with the history of migration from Lebanon to Latin America. For many years, there has been a wave of migration from Lebanon to Latin America. Some of the migrants have been Christians, but many of them have been Shiites from Lebanon. Many of them made it financially in Latin America, as well as in West Africa. And in both West Africa and Latin America, you detect close collaboration between the Ayatollahs and the Hezbollah terrorists. And the Ayatollahs have used Hezbollah's enclaves in Latin America to establish their foothold there. And establishing foothold has meant, for instance, establishing terrorist camps in South America, especially in the tri-border area of Argentina, Paraguay, and Brazil, and then a smaller tri-border area of Chile and Bolivia and Peru. And why tri-border area? Because historically, these two tri-border areas have been heaven, paradise, for terrorists, drug traffickers, and money launderers, which have been the expertise of the Ayatollahs and Hezbollah. In fact, I have been writing on this issue for some time, and a few months ago, I got an interesting email uh, as a feedback to some of my articles on Iran and the tri-border areas. And the email was written by an elderly person who used to operate in the tri-border area as an American who was involved those years, I'm talking about the 1980s, 1990s, in the area of money laundering. He sent me, in fact, some media interviews which he conducted with journalists, American journalists, who flew with him to the tri-border area, and they explain in the articles how this American operated in Latin America and the presence of Iranians and Hezbollah there. And according to this uh, American, it has been known throughout that area that the Ayatollahs of Iran have become increasingly part of the 
permanent features of Latin America. They established terrorist or, uh, terrorist training camps in those tri-border areas, training terrorists, some of whom were dispatched to the Middle East, others remained in Latin America, joining terror organizations in Latin America, terrorizing the few remaining pro-American regimes in Latin America. They established seminaries in Latin America, proselytizing local people to Islam. They established TV network in Spanish, transmitting the messages of Islam and the messages of the Ayatollahs, strategic messages to the population of Latin America. In fact, they have collaborated with every single drug cartel in Mexico and Colombia and Bolivia and Ecuador and Brazil. And this collaboration was not limited only to drug trafficking by leveraging the Ayatollah's and Hezbollah's presence in West Africa, which has made drug trafficking into Europe, into the Middle East, through West Africa, that much more effective, they have also and primarily concentrated on drug trafficking into the U.S. from the U.S.-Mexico border. And in order to bolster that attempt for the last few years, they have supplied the drug cartels with equipment to construct underground tunnels from Mexico into the U.S. with the purpose of facilitating the drug trafficking as well as the passage of terrorists into the U.S., establishing numerous slipper cells in the United States. And in that context, we just had a visit by the FBI director from this country. The visit took place uh, the last few days. I think he departed from Israel either today or yesterday. And the question is, what is the FBI director doing in Israel at this particular uh, time? And according to the FBI director, both in Israel and during a hearing which he uh, featured on Capitol Hill, where he said that FBI assessment is that Hamas terror against Israel could very well inspire terrorist organizations to conduct similar terrorism against the U.S. in different parts of the world, including on the U.S. mainland itself. And the FBI director's purpose of visiting Israel at this particular time was or is to study the way we fight terrorism in that urban warfare atmosphere, as well as how do we confront the tunnels as a venue to uh, expand terrorism 
and drug, uh, drug trafficking. We have seen the Ayatollahs very active in different parts of the world against the U.S., while the U.S. persists, persists in its attempt to preclude the military option, to preclude the option of uh, regime change, and to systematically adhere to the diplomatic option, which has provided the Ayatollahs for the last 45 years with one heck of a tailwind effect, bolstering the Ayatollah's anti-U.S. capabilities and dealing a blow to American interests in the Middle East and throughout the globe. Because every single, every single pro-American Arab regime in the Middle East has been targeted by the anti-American Ayatollahs. But the policy adhered to and conducted by the U.S. has been a policy insisting that uh, generous enough or tremendously generous financial bonanza, diplomatic bonanza showered upon the Ayatollahs could convince the Ayatollahs to accept peaceful coexistence with its Arab Sunni neighbors. It could convince or induce the Ayatollahs to accept good faith negotiation. And more than that, the belief in the State Department that a very, very generous financial and diplomatic bonanza could also convince the Ayatollahs to depart from their 1,400-year-old vision, which again has no room for any religion but Islam, has no room for the so-called great American Satan. And certainly the, the reality in the Middle East and beyond has contradicted those assumptions by the State Department, which until this very moment has not changed the actual uh, policy, which goes back to the rhetorical question I posed before, U.S. policy towards Iran, are we going to witness a repeat or avoiding of past mistakes? It seems to me that as of now, the leadership of the State Department, especially the Secretary of State, has been very insistent on sustaining that failed uh, policy, independent of the obvious results on the ground, which has been very much counter to the best interest of the U.S. and the best interest of regional and global stability. Uh, I would like to end here my uh, opening remarks and turn it to your own uh, questions, but not only questions, your own position, uh, your own criticism of anything which I uh, said, 
and it doesn't have to be limited to this particular topic, but anything which relates to Israel that you may want to uh, to raise. No. Anyone there? Yeah, go ahead. Question. So, why, if the Shah of Iran prior to 1979 was actually working with the United States, why did they feel the need to oust him to bring in the Ayatollahs? The question was, why would the U.S. help to oust the Shah of Iran who was working with the U.S. and bring about the regime of the Ayatollahs? And the response has to do, in my mind, uh, with the current motivation by the State Department, which is based, as was the 1979 policy, based on devastatingly misreading or devastating misreading of Middle East reality. As I mentioned before, the administration was convinced that they are going to interact with an Iranian edition of Gandhi. They were convinced that the Ayatollah, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini would be preoccupied with tractors, not with tanks, and they were certain that Ayatollah Khomeini was not interested in exporting the Islamic uh, revolution beyond the boundaries of uh, Iran. Certainly, anyone who knew anything about Ayatollah Khomeini should have dismissed any of the conclusions made by the CIA, by the State Department, and by the White House. And one of the critical elements which caused such a self-destructive policy in 79, and in my mind sustain, sustains this self-destructive policy, has been the naive assumption by the State Department that money talks. And since money talks, sadly, from my perspective, in many parts of the Western world, they assumed that money also talks when it comes to Iran's ayatollahs or to the Palestinians. And if you shower, if you shower the ayatollahs and the Palestinians with a very generous financial bonanza, that will cause them to subordinate their vision to the power of money. Well, it works many times in the West. It is completely irrelevant in many parts of the Middle East. And once again, this is not an assumption. This is based on many, many precedents. Vast money was showered upon the Ayatollahs, and that money has been dedicated to more and more anti-American subversion and terrorism and drug trafficking and money laundering, not to moderate uh, Iran. We're talking about vast amount of money to a country like Iran and to the Palestinians 
which are getting also their foreign aid from this administration after foreign aid was suspended of the Palestinians. But at the same time, both the Ayatollahs of Iran and the Palestinians make it very clear as far as their vision, as far as their strategy through their education system. The Ayatollah's education system underscores the need to get rid of the great American Satan. The Palestinian hate education has made it clear since 1993 that so-called Palestine has to be cleared of any Jewish sovereignty. But the State Department persists in showering those two entities with American largesse. And once again, it back, uh, backfires. So again, back to your question, it has been the detachment from Middle East reality which has led to stabbing the pro-American Shah in the back and providing tailwind to the anti-American uh, Ayatollah. Just like, again, the Palestinians. The Palestinians who sided way back with Nazi Germany, then with the Soviet bloc, then with Ayatollah Khomeini, providing or availing training camps for Asian terrorists, European terrorists, Latin American terrorists, African terrorists, Palestinians who have collaborated with Muslim Brotherhood terrorists, anti-American Muslim Brotherhood terrorists, Palestinians who collaborate currently with North Korea, with Cuba, with Venezuela, close ties with China and Russia, but still are endowed with American foreign aid under the assumption that such foreign aid is bound somehow to moderate the Palestinians. It may work in many Western circles. It does not work in uh, the Middle East, or in most of the Middle East, because both Iranian leaders as well as Palestinian leaders do not allow money to transcend their ideology. It's not only American largesse which was showered upon the Palestinians. Israel, 1993, we have provided the Palestinians with unprecedented opportunities by bringing into the land of Israel Amazingly and recklessly enough, some 100,000 Palestinian terrorists headed by the PLO terror organization. We provided them with territory, we provided them with financial and military resources, and in return, as expected, they launched unprecedented wave of terrorism against Israel because terrorists bite the hand that feeds them. But that was not enough for some reckless Israeli leaders and came 2005 and they decided, well, maybe we haven't done enough. So we uprooted Jewish communities from Gaza. 
We uprooted Israeli military presence from Gaza. We provided full control of Gaza to the Palestinians. And obviously, in return, a much worse wave of terrorism against Israel, which haunts us until this very day, because once again, you must expect rogue elements, terrorist elements, to bite the hand that feeds, uh, feeds them. In the U.S., this has been the State Department's policy. But as you know, in the U.S., you have a co-equal branch of government, and that's the legislature, the House and the Senate. And in the House especially, but also in the Senate, there is an increasing number of Democratic legislators who, just like almost all Republican legislators, increasingly oppose the administration's policy on Iran. And I would not uh, lose hope of changing American policy from based on Pollyannish vision to return to reality because there is a branch of government that could make a difference. And, and as you know, that branch of government uh, is very, very much tuned to constituents' messages and constituents who feel that something is wrong with policy, I think, could be advised to share their assessments with their representatives in the House and in the Senate. Yes, please. Okay, this might be opening up a real hornet's nest. Um, Obama, were his reasons the same for supporting Iran as the previous administrations, or were his reasons because he's sympathetic with the Muslim Brotherhood? Well, uh, certainly uh, the major accord with the Ayatollahs of Iran was concluded during the Obama-Biden administration, and that accord has provided Ayatollahs of Iran with the most effective tailwind for their anti-American uh, policy. Uh, that policy was suspended for four years, and in fact, during the four years succeeding the second Obama administration, Iran was on the verge of uh, an economic bankruptcy due to economic sanctions. But as of January 2021 or February 2021, things have changed in uh, the attitude towards Iran. And once the economic sanctions were suspended, once again, there was a resurgence in the anti-American Iranian terrorism, drug trafficking, and money, uh, money laundering. Yes, please. I came in late, so I'm, you know, so I'm listening to the very end of your, of your uh, speech. But two things that I have to ask is, uh, 
with what's going on in Israel right now, how can we help? What is our part? What can we do to help Israel, number one? Number two, where is it that we can uh, donate, uh, donate funds and feel like our funds are going directly to Israel to help uh, with uh, what's going on? As, as far as uh, what can be done to help Israel, it seems to me that uh, your most effective venue would be to, to set U.S. policy on the right track. Uh, Israel's interests are consistent with a realistic U.S. policy, and Israel's interests are undermined with faulty U.S. policy. Uh, a major posture of deterrence of the U.S., is the most important asset for Israel and any other ally of the U.S. Faulty U.S. policy has undermined severely U.S. posture of deterrence, which means tailwind to rogue elements throughout the globe and headwind to every single ally of the U.S., specifically on uh, Israel, it has to do with two-prone policy. Namely, one is U.S. policy on Iran, reassessing the diplomatic option after 45 years of systematic failure and an attempt to examine other options such as regime change option, such as a potent military threat hovering above the head of the Ayatollahs. I personally don't believe that there is a chance to change the Ayatollahs' vision or strategy. But to prove me wrong and change the Ayatollahs' strategy, you must move away from a diplomatic option. You must deliver a message to the Ayatollahs that there will be military consequences to their subversion and terrorism and drug trafficking. As long as there is no potent military threat hovering above the head of the Ayatollahs, there is no chance that they will change their uh, mind. This is just like a police chief who is facing criminal elements and doing away with the threat of imprisoning them, but still hoping that those criminal elements somehow are going to abandon uh, crime. It doesn't work that uh, way. When it comes to the other element, which is the Palestinian uh, state option adhered to by the administration, it seems to me that a most the most effective way of altering the U.S. policy on the proposed Palestinian state is not only to highlight <clears throat> the threat to the Jewish state. The threat to the Jewish state, in my mind, should be addressed in Israel to convince Israelis to reject the 
proposed Palestinian state. When it comes to Americans, the focus should be on the adverse effect of the proposed Palestinian state on U.S. interests. And as far as my experience tells me, on and off Capitol Hill with Christians and Jews, most do not realize or have not articulated the impact of the proposed Palestinian state on American interest. For instance, we have on the one hand, we have the State Department embracing the idea of a Palestinian state, but at the same time, Arab leaders limiting their support of Palestinian state to an embracing talk, while the Arab walk on the Palestinian issue has been anywhere from indifferent to negative. And the question is, how come right now Israel is fighting Palestinians in Gaza, but not a single Arab country flexes a military muscle on behalf of the Palestinians? How come they don't flex financial muscle on behalf of the Palestinians? How come not a single Palestinian-Israeli confrontation in the past, going back to 1948, how come not a single such confrontation attracted Arab involvement on the side of the Palestinians? How come not a single Arab-Israeli war was triggered by the Palestine, by concern for the Palestinians? And the response is very clear. The Palestinian track record has positioned them as a role model of intra-Arab, intra-Arab subversion, terrorism, treachery, and ingratitude. Arabs are aware that in the early 1950s, the Palestinian leadership at that time in Gaza collaborated with Muslim Brotherhood terrorists against their host country, Egypt. And that leadership had to run away from Egypt for terrorism and subversion. Syria absorbed them, but within few years, they collaborated with Muslim Brotherhood terrorists in Syria against their host government. And they had to run away from Syria. And Jordan absorbed them, allowing them to terrorize Israel from Jordanian territory. But in 1970, they tried to topple their host regime. And a civil war ensued, which is referred to as Black September. And they had to run away from Jordan to Lebanon. From 1970 to 75, they plundered southern Lebanon. And then they say, why not take on Beirut, the central government in Lebanon, which triggered series of civil wars in, in Lebanon, which triggered the Christian appeal to Syria to invade Lebanon militarily 
in order to snatch the Christians of Lebanon from the jaws of the PLO. And they terrorized Lebanon until 1982 when they were expelled from Lebanon. And in 1990, August of 1990, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, at a time when Kuwait was the most generous host of Palestinians, absorbing 400,000 Palestinians, all of whom were allies, relatives, friends, associates of Arafat and Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority, at that time, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, assisted by the same Palestinians who benefited from Kuwaiti generosity. And that was the reason for Sheikh Sabah of Kuwait, once he was restored to power by the Americans, the first thing he did was expel almost all 400,000 Palestinians. And currently, as we know, the Egyptians oppose any proposition to settle Palestinians in Sinai. And the reason is very clear. They are familiar with the Palestinian track record and they do not want potential terrorists on their own ground, in their own uh, territory. It seems to me that since most Americans on the hill, off the hill, in the State Department, in the media, certainly public-wise uh, in the U.S., are not familiar with the track record of the Palestinians. Therefore, they are basically easily misled by what I would call the speculative scenarios by the State Department about two states living peacefully side by side. I wish such a scenario about the relations between the Jewish state and a Palestinian state would have anything to do with reality. But the track record of the Palestinians suggests that any assumption about peaceful coexistence involving Palestinians contradicts the track, uh, the track record. And I think it would be very useful for American interests, for Israeli interests, to pay attention of your own congressmen, your own two senators, to that reality and inducing uh, uh, the legislators to deal with the proposed Palestinian state more realistically, not being trapped by those speculative future scenarios which have nothing to do with reality. Yes, please. When I asked you the question about what we as individuals can do, and you went ahead and expounded and, and made clarification, so my thing is, is that to make people, all of us, aware that we can contact our senators our uh, congressmen, and let them know how it is that we feel uh, about uh, the Jewish people and the lies that are being uh, put out throughout the media. I think that that's one thing that we can voice our opinions in that way. Number two, I asked you the other question that I asked you was that 
where can we donate funds directly to Israel to help the people there? Well, first and foremost, again, I repeat what I said before. It seems to me the most active, the most effective way for Americans to have an effect on any policy is to highlight not the Israeli interest, but rather the American interest. The proposed Palestinian state is an anti-American proposal for anyone who bases the assessments not on futuristic speculative scenarios, but on past well-documented track record. When somebody comes to your office uh, in response to an ad about uh, uh, needed personnel in the office, you don't focus uh, interviewing that person on that person's plans for the future. You want to know about the track record of that person. You want to know about the recommendations and performance of that person in the past. And that will decide the, uh, the, uh, the employment or unemployment of that person. The same applies to the proposed Palestinian state. And my advice is to ask if you turn to your representative or to your senators, not to ask them to be more pro-Israel or pro-Jewish, but ask them to be more attuned to American interests and more attuned to reality rather than to an alternative reality. As far as uh, donation of money, I, I really am I'm, I'm not involved in that. I'm not uh, familiar I know, I'm, I, I know that there are multitude of uh, venues, uh, there are multitude of initiatives of not only donations, but volunteers. Uh, I, I met a number of Americans who have come to Israel for 10 days, for 20 days, helping in some uh, areas, be it in hospitals, be it in uh, uh, community centers, be it in picking fruit or vegetables in uh, uh, Jewish communities which have uh, which lack manpower because uh, the manpower is fighting in Gaza or in the in the north. I'm uh, familiar with Americans who have come to Israel to visit uh, Israeli soldiers in hospitals. Uh, one particular case of Americans visiting uh, soldiers who have gone through amputation of uh, limbs and coming to them and uh, uh, energizing their spirit by demonstrating American solidarity with their valiant performance on behalf of the Jewish uh, state. And such visits have left major, major positive impression upon the Israeli population at large, upon the uh, wounded soldiers in particular, upon bereaved uh, families, and that impact <coughs> has adrenalized the veins of uh, Israelis at a time when we are in need of much uh, adrenaline in face of the war both in the south and the war in the north. Uh, Yoram, this 
this morning when we had breakfast, we were talking about the response of the of the soldiers, the wounded soldiers, as people talk to them. What's their morale like? Well, uh, again, based on some American volunteers who met such soldiers, and as they told me, the American volunteers, they expected to see a pretty down spirit, to see uh, people who are prepared for very rough uh, time, uh, hoping, praying for some uh, 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 reinforcement, and instead, they told me they found very high spirit. In fact, on few cases, when the Americans asked the uh, soldiers who lost both legs, who lost one uh, leg, uh, how do they prepare themselves for such uh, uh, for their life in the coming years? And the response was that they were, the soldiers said, that they were grateful for giving a chance to live after an experience which almost cost them their life, and they are now more energized than before to continue and uh, partaking in the uh, struggle of the Jewish uh, state. Uh, there have been bereaved uh, parents uh, who uh, have been interviewed on a daily basis on the Israeli media to talk about uh, the circumstances that their children were killed. And once again, they revealed themselves to be of very, very powerful uh, spirit with the interviewer asking about uh, the sorrow and the loss and the bereaved parents talk about the pride they feel that their children contributed so much to the survival of the Jewish state and how much they are much more energized to continue the struggle of the Jewish state and how much, in fact, I would say this is uh, uh, across the, uh, uh, the entire Israeli social strata, how much they urge the Israeli government to press the pedal to the metal and not end that war until Hamas terrorists are literally obliterated. Uh, and I would say, from my own perspective, I did not expect to see such high spirit among the Israeli population at large, but especially not from people who were hit so uh, tragically during this uh, war, especially, especially uh, myself and many Israelis have been overwhelmed by uh, unprecedented solidarity among Israelis with left and right and religious and secular and hawks and doves serving in the same unit in Gaza, not paying attention to the divisiveness, but paying attention on the common denominator of the fight by Israelis in face of Islamic, uh, Islamic terrorism. Uh, we have been overwhelmed by the spirit of our younger generation. Many of us, including myself, I admit, we almost gave up on the younger generation because the misperception we had was that our youth 
has been hooked to TikTok and uh, a cellular screen and uh, less concerned with Jewish history and Jewish roots and, uh, and uh, uh, Hebrew literature. And we found out uh, that this young generation is committed to the Jewish state in a way which uh, no one, no one has uh, expected, and not only because they fight well in Gaza, but again, every day, the media interviews soldiers, and to hear their reference to their commitment to Jewish roots, their commitment to Jewish history, their commitment to the legacy of Zionism, way, way beyond the headline of today, you realize that there is something in Jewish history, one may say the Jewish genes, which has shaped such a state of mind. Otherwise, I, I just cannot explain uh, that. And again, it's not the first time, because everybody here knows Jewish history has been replete with crisis. And look at those crises of the past and look at the present, we have come a long uh, way demonstrating that the foundation of the Jewish religion and Jewish history and Jewish culture is very, very robust, enabling generation after generation to resurge and rebound after a crisis. There is, by the way, something of that uh, uh, nature in, uh, in the Hebrew language. In Hebrew, there is a word for crisis. Uh, in Hebrew, it is mashber. Mashber is crisis. But there is also Hebrew word, which is a biblical word. In the context of Joseph in Egypt, Joseph was referred to as a mashbir. Mashbir, similar to mashber. And the mashbir is the one who produces prosperity. And the old Jewish sages said, this is not accidental. It has to do with the fact of life. If you approach a crisis in a proper way, in a realistic way, you can turn around that crisis into prosperity. And when you go back to 1973, the Yom Kippur War, which in a similar way to what we experienced on October 7th, was also started with an overwhelming uh, uh, surprise assault on Israel with a devastating Israeli military debacle on the opening uh, day. But it took the Israelis very, very uh, uh, few hours to rebound, research, and the end of the war, we were pretty close to Damascus, pretty close to Cairo, and if not, at that time, uh, the U.S. administration, maybe would have been, we would have been all the way into Damascus and into Cairo. And in a similar way, we started October 7 with a big-time military intelligence uh, debacle, but it took few days for the military to regroup, reassert itself, research, and while we don't know the end of the war, I hope it will be the obliteration of Hamas, but certainly at this stage, once again, we have proven our capabilities 
to rebound and be uh, true to that concept, that Hebrew concept that crisis and prosperity are the same if we approach crisis in a proper, optimistic, realistic, rather than fatalistic manner. Yes, please. I'm very much aware of the Islamic Caliphate that they want to, uh, the Islamic people want to regain favor with God by s ruling the world. They feel that they have fallen out of favor with God, the Allah, and that by conquering the world, they will reinstate their favor with God. So this is much stronger. Uh, their ideology is much stronger than economics. But I, I have a question to you, sir. Tell me, please, if what I've read on the Internet is incorrect. Uh, before the, yes, laugh, before the uh, October 7th event, uh, there were all these skirmishes between Israel and Palestine. <coughs> and eventually where it ended up last was that Israel said, we're going to remove ourselves militarily, but we're going to control the ports, the seaports, the airports, your, and we're going to uh, control your trade. And so as a result... Uh, the people, uh, they tried to get jobs in Palestine and the Israelis came in and took their jobs, they said, on the internet story. And um, I guess what I'm trying to find out is if there were an election after you get rid of the Hamas, would the Palestinian people, which they statistically are the, the lowest poverty level in the world, they don't have food, and this has been going on for quite some time. So they're very hard-pressed economically. And so if are there free elections where the Palestinians couldn't really control to get Hamas elected? They don't, maybe they don't, after you get rid of Hamas, will the Palestinians, if they were given a chance, could they have free elections and really get the help that they need because I see these Palestinian people on different places everywhere uh, on the news and they're unhappy, they want peace. I mean, they're human beings. Could that ever happen where there'd be a peaceful uh, state of Palestine where they can elect their own good leaders or, or not? That's what I'm trying to find out. Well, uh, once again, my suggestion is to stick by reality. And reality suggests that Middle East environment is not Western environment. And therefore, Western values, in many cases, do not apply to the Middle East. We're talking about the Middle East, which for the last 1400 years has not experienced intra-Muslim or intra-Arab peaceful coexistence. Not because of any conflict with Israel, nothing to do with Israel. This has been the nature of the neighborhood. 
We're talking about the Middle East that for the last 1400 years has not experienced democracy. There's no such thing as one man, one vote in the Middle East. We don't have a single Arab regime which has ascended to power through the ballot. They ascend to power through the bullet, namely through one violent means or another violent means. And the meaning, uh, the significance is that the majority view does not count. What counts in Arab societies is the view of the clique which controls the country, the ethnic minority or religious minority or ideological minority or tribal minority which controls the specific Arab country. Now, this is a pretty frustrating reality, but the worst way of tackling this frustrating reality is to produce an alternative reality which spares you the frustration and the inconvenience and the blood and the violence entailed in the actual uh, reality. But basing a policy or attitude on alternative reality does not bode well. It only produces much worse damage to an already very costly, uh, costly reality. And last and not least, there is a misperception about Hamas terrorists versus the innocent Palestinians in Gaza or in Judea and Samaria. Again, the reality suggests that such an assumption has nothing to do with reality. We have had, since 1993, Palestinian parents sending their children to hate education schools, going themselves to hate sermoned mosques, uh, walking around the streets observing the monuments heralding terrorists, realizing that if a member of your family engaged, is engaged in terrorism, the family is rewarded by monthly allowances by the Palestinian leadership. And therefore, and therefore, every single act of terror against Israel has triggered an explosion of celebration by those quote-unquote innocent Palestinians. Now, I don't attribute uh, any credibility to public opinion polls in dictatorships. We have had m some or many polls taken among Palestinians, and as I say, I don't accord it credence, but anyone who does accord it any credence should realize that every single poll taken by non-Hamas elements among Palestinians has produced overwhelming identification with Hamas before the war and since the, uh, the war. The, the, the way we treat Hamas as if it is a terror organization imposing itself on the poor Palestinians, again, is divorced from reality. 
Gaza has become a terror state, and Hamas rules that terror state. Hamas is not the shining star terrorist groups of Peru. Hamas is not the Red Brigade terrorists of Italy. Hamas is not even the Assad regime of Syria because Hamas reflects Palestinian sentiments much more than Assad of Syria represents Syrian sentiments and I would venture to say even much more representative of Palestinians than the Ayatollah regime in Iran where about half are not very certain that they support the Ayatollahs, not religiously and not ethnically and not historically. And therefore, the hope that once Hamas is removed, then finally will come to a resolution of the conflict, sadly, is totally divorced from reality. And once again, the proof is in the pudding. Terrorism in the area has preceded Hamas. Terrorism in the area has preceded the establishment of Israel. Terrorism in the area is irrespective of American policy. In fact, Islamic terrorism has hit the U.S. irrespective of the identity of the president. When President Trump was in the White House, Islamic terrorism hit the American homeland. When Obama was in the White House, Islamic terrorism hit uh, the homeland. You remember uh, 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 the base near San Antonio uh, where, where 12, 12 Americans were murdered. No, no. Uh, Fort Hood. Fort Hood. Fort Hood. Uh, during uh, Obama, and I believe uh, San Bernardino terrorism took place, uh, Orlando terrorism took place, and one could say Obama was the most accommodating president to Muslims throughout the world, but he did not spare the U.S. of terrorism because this has been an intrinsic feature of the area. And Israel has been victimized by that terrorism, irrespective of whether it's left or right, which controls Israel, just like in the U.S., whether it's Republicans or Democrats at the White House. Still, you are the great American Satan, and we are the infidel Jewish entity, and both of us, therefore, are doomed, supposedly, to be eliminated and to be brought to uh, submission. We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> now, if you have any more questions, many of you are going to be going with us tomorrow night to Beth Yashurn, and at that Shabbat evening service, Yoram will be speaking again. You may have more chances to ask him questions. But we need to let everybody go home now because we have a big day tomorrow as well, and so do you. And he was speaking in Brenham at a luncheon earlier today. So, Yoram, thank you very much. Thank you. And we appreciate it. As uh, Pastor uh, Robbie mentioned before, I'll be very happy to share with you my uh, weekly articles. Uh, you can visit my website, theettingerreport.com, uh, or somehow share with me your email address. I'll be very happy 
to communicate uh, with you. Thank you very much. Thank you.